Thank you very much, Grant, for bringing us uh, our three Bible readings uh, today. And good morning and welcome, uh, everyone, and my welcome to, uh, to Stuart's. Uh, it's good to see you uh, here for our service today at 10.30. And um, let's, let's pray as we come to today's uh, Bible uh, reading and, and sermon. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, earlier in the week, at the Wednesday service, we had a little bit of fun in finding out what sport people play or what they used to, to play. And we had some of the, the, the more popular and well-recognised sports, but we also had lacrosse. Bruce Gould used to play lacrosse and do archery. Um, uh, Avril uh, used to do basketball, and Elspeth here was into, into horse riding. Uh, so I wonder if anybody is prepared to be very brave and uh, say the sport that you're currently playing, passionate about, or maybe used to be. Come on, let's see. Who used to kind of grace the ovals and courts around Adelaide? Or perhaps you still do. Who wants to... <laughs> Grant? Cricket at Kensington Cricket Club? Brilliant, brilliant. Any, any advances on cricket? Tony? Tennis, Brilliant. Tennis as well. Fantastic. Neil? A spectator. A, spe a sporting spectator. Which sport were you spectating? Mainly AFL footy. Brilliant. Stuart? Fullback rugby union. Fullback rugby union. Wow. Number 15. Shopping. Oh, <laughs> and, was there Andy? Golf, lovely, brilliant. Well, that is wonderful, and it's good to do that, to find out people's different uh, interests. Um, when I grew up in the rectory um, in Portland and southwest uh, Victoria, St. Stephen's Church there, it's a, if you've been to Portland, it's hard to, to miss uh, the church there. It's right smack bang in the centre of town on the main street with beautiful views over the harbour. It's a lovely setting, and it's actually on five acres of, of land. Uh, so you have all the you know, church and rectory and hall and orchard and two tennis courts. So I kind of grew up in this you know, very kind of blessed situation where I was kind of running around, you know, five acres of land, kicking one of those brown plastic footballs and breaking my toe uh, in, in the process, had very kind of hard ends uh, on them, and uh, playing tennis. So my mum taught me how to play tennis, and I was beating her by the age of seven. Uh, and, uh, and just kind of went on from there. So I played tennis every Thursday uh, night lawn and then hard court on a Saturday, juniors in the morning and then A-grade uh, a seniors uh, in the afternoon. Also played a bit of AFL, so uh, junior uh, footy and then when I went to university I played a bit of bush uh, football uh, also. But it was the, the comments of my junior football coach uh, that I want to touch on today and that have kind of stayed with me uh, since, um, uh, since that time. He would always say to us, no passengers, as we were in the sheds and about to go out uh, onto the field. Now, why did he say no passengers for? Well, he meant that you know, as we were going out there and as we crossed that white line, that all 18 players needed to be 100% committed to playing the ball. It required putting your whole body on the line for every mark when you had the kind of the pack closing in on you uh, behind, for every tackle and for every chase down. 
There was no room to hide or to back out, uh, for the success of the team was built upon many small yet courageous acts where everybody was to put their bodies uh, on the line to win the game. No passengers. So how does this relate to our passage today, you might be thinking? Well, that's a very good question. Firstly, our reading begins midway through Jesus' teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is mid-flow, and he's responding to the various traps that the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and now the scribes were looking uh, to lay for him. So it's a very kind of tense and heated part of Mark's gospel, uh, which brims with uh, both flashes and sparks of hope as Jesus the Messiah has finally arrived in Jerusalem, but it's also tempered by the plottings and the manoeuvrings of those with darkened minds who haven't yet recognised Jesus as the Messiah. So in today's reading, uh, we're riding the wave of Jesus' triumphal entry, bringing those messianic expectations of liberation and deliverance of the masses suffering under Roman yoke. But there's also included uh, in this hope a message of judgment, a judgment on the temple system and the turning over of the money-changing tables and judgment on God's own wayward people in the teaching of the cursing of the fig tree and in the parable of the wicked tenants. Last week, uh, we saw how Jesus navigated one of these traps by the Pharisees and the Herodians in relation to the payment of Roman taxes. That was a contentious issue because the Romans were pagans, they were in charge, the coins had an image of Caesar on them and God's people were kind of caught up in paying their taxes uh, to Caesar. And there was an argument as to whether that was right for God's people to do that or not. Uh, Jesus, uh, as he so often does, avoids the trap and, and turns it into a teaching point. And he says, does anyone have a coin on them? And they're caught out in their hypocrisy by possessing a Roman denarius with the image of the emperor on there. And Jesus simply says, well, give to the emperor what belongs to him. It's got his image on it. Give it back to him. Uh, so he uh, doesn't fall into the trap of being anti-tax, but he also uses it to teach people about those who are made in God's image, i.e. everybody there listening to Jesus, and all of us, all humans, uh, to give ourselves in the service of God. Uh, so we are to give ourselves completely in the service of God because we are made in God's image. This theme of offering ourselves to God is built upon further in our reading today and this time following an exchange with the scribes on the question of which commandment is the greatest. And this is from verse 28 in Mark 12 onwards. The relationship between Jesus and the scribes in this instance seems quite cordial and okay, uh, which might have something to do with their lower status even though they were religious leaders they did actually belong to poorer classes and lived off the subsidies of other people but don't be fooled we've already learned back at the cleansing of the temple that the chief priests and the scribes became united together in their plans to find a way 
to actually kill Jesus. So what seems kind of cordial on the surface is actually an outworking of God's amazing love and amazing grace in Jesus embracing people even when they have uh, these evil motives behind them. So we see the love of God in action as Jesus uh, seeks to help them and teach them about his own identity. So the grace of God in Jesus refuses to avoid correcting the scribes' sincerely held but incomplete understandings as to the identity of God's Messiah, even when they're plotting to do away with him. So it's quite amazing. I think it's good to point uh, out that background in the first instance. And so in love and in grace for others, Jesus launches out with this question. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Question mark. Now, it's a fairly innocuous and uncontroversial question. It was, of course, a common messianic understanding that the Messiah would be from King David's line. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. So the answer to the question is easy and straightforward. It is there in the scriptures. It is there in the prophets. But before an opportunity is given for the scribes to answer in this way, Jesus presents a dichotomy uh, to this question, which comes from, again, the scriptures, from Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the passage. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this is the source of the dichotomy. And in the event that there is any confusion about the dichotomy Jesus is presenting, he spells it out loud and clear. Verse 37. David himself calls him Lord, meaning the Messiah Lord. So how can he be his son? And son here means descendant. So do you see the problem that Jesus is setting up? The Messiah is King David's descendant to come from David's line. But in Psalm 110, David is speaking to the Messiah and calling him Lord. So how can the Messiah exist concurrent to David's time, but emerge also from his line some 1,000 years later? And the answer is, of course, he can do it if the Messiah is eternal, if the Messiah is God, the eternal God himself. Now, Mark doesn't record the response of the scribes here, but he does record the response of the crowds. Verse 37, and the large crowd was listening to him with delight. With delight. The Greek word is hedios, joy, glad. They were listening to Jesus with delight. And we see this delight in the crowds in these chapters, uh, from the reception of Jesus, in the triumphal entry, the crowds are Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
And this carries over into the cleansing of the temple, where again the whole crowd were spellbound by his teaching, Mark records. So Jesus is popular. Jesus is popular with the crowds. There is joy. There is gladness. They are listening to him, hanging on his every word with delight. Jesus is popular. But this popularity becomes one of the grounds for the religious leaders wanting to do him away. So there's this kind of hostility in the background. But with this hostility in the background, Jesus doesn't avoid speaking truth about the scribes and how they've been going about their roles with impure motives and ways. And so Jesus says this in Mark 12, 38 to 39. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. It's quite... Uh, withering takedown, I guess you could say. And in Jesus' withering uh, takedown or reveal uh, what they're truly like, there is a general critique here of the scribe's love of deference. And this coming from men uh, whose dedication to the law should have turned their praise towards the one true God rather than desiring praise for themselves. So there's a general uh, comment there that Jesus is making. But what other dysfunctional behaviours, I guess you could say, can you spot in Jesus' description of the scribes? He says they liked to walk around in long robes. So there's vanity there and there's pride there. They like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. So like flattery. Uh, they devoured widows' houses. So there's selfishness and greed and exploitation uh, being shown here. Now, after the Wednesday uh, service uh, midweek, it hadn't escaped people's attention that both Stuart and I were, similar to the scribes, dressed in our long robes. So we had a bit of a laugh uh, after the service um, about that. But is there a difference uh, here? Uh, The scribes, well, they stood out in their day as wearing long white linen robes reaching down to their feet with a long fringe, similar to clerical vestments. But this was the scribes' everyday attire, marking them out for who they were. So when a scribe passed by people on the street, people could see them and instantly know who they were. And they would stop what they were doing, or if they were sat down, they would rise up Uh, respectfully in acknowledging the scribe and the authority uh, that they possessed uh, from God. So as you can see, it's quite a different situation uh, unless uh, a clergy person loves to walk around the town or city in their uh, long flowing uh, robes, looking for positive comments and feeding off positive comments from people. It's a very different situation to what Jesus is talking about uh, compared to the wearing of vestments 
to cover plain clothes during public worship. So in the case of the scribes in Jesus' day, the offerings and hospitality the scribes received was open to abuse. And here we can see through Jesus' critique and condemnation that the scribes were sponging on the hospitality uh, of people with, with little to no means. So they've lost their perspective in doing deeds for people rather than for God. The honour they were to give to God has become honour they desired for themselves. So they have displaced God in their hearts. And they've put themselves front and centre of their life and worship. And this has blinded them from seeing the arrival of God's Messiah. And still, Jesus, knowing the desires of their hearts and knowing of their plots to kill him, Jesus still chooses to engage with them in the hope of saving them, rescuing them, and certainly to rescue other people from their designs, from their clutches. So Jesus does this by moving towards them in love, to teach them more about himself, to teach him about the Lord, that he is, yes, David's ancestor, but also David's Lord, because Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus, the eternal Lord, who alone is worthy of our praise and of our worship. He is standing right there in flesh in their midst and teaching them about himself so that they might come to know him and to know his lordship and to be saved. But what does being saved look like? What does being obedient to Jesus look like if the scribes and other religious leaders are not offering uh, the desired example uh, to God's people? Well, Jesus offers a startling picture from everyday life to show what a life consists of that is fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. The scene moves to the treasury. And in the treasury, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for people to put their offerings into. And in contrast to the wealthy who brought much, Jesus zeroes in on an unnamed widow whose action is in stark contrast to the fake performances of the scribes who are supposed to be wholeheartedly for God. Now, this poor widow has two small copper coins. Her poverty and need for self-preservation and self-sufficiency must have been, must have been a pull on her heart as she approached the treasury. The offering of two copper coins could have easily slipped to be an offering of one copper coin because of her poverty. And no one would know. No one would know. But friends, that is not the state of her heart because she puts both coins in. And to Jesus, to God, this is more. This small offering is more. 
not just more than the next person or more than all the others at the time, but Jesus says she has put in more than all those who were contributing to the treasury. Why? Because she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. She has put in everything that she owned. This poor widow is not a passenger in the economy of God. This poor widow is 100% committed in faith and trust to God. This poor widow is giving to God all that she had, believing that she will be okay. The poor widow is the one that Jesus chooses to illustrate what big-hearted, whole-life discipleship under the lordship of Jesus Christ actually looks like and requires. So I wonder, friends, if that is an encouragement to you today, that Jesus would notice, that Jesus notice someone who for many people would go unnoticed then and today because of her status, because of her age, because of her gender. The one true living God noticed her and can see her generosity and her response to God, that she is wholeheartedly trusting in God for her provision. It's quite humbling, isn't it? I was taking communion to a residential care at home in the week and I'm always very humbled uh, when I do so. Um, just going through the communal areas and seeing the staff there supporting uh, people towards the end of their lives in um, various stages and states of, uh, of abilities and complexities and just seeing the, uh, the selfless action and, and the love in action uh, as staff are caring and supporting people uh, who are coming to the end uh, of their lives. It's quite a moving uh, thing to experience uh, and to watch, and always very uh, humbling. And similarly, friends, Christ calls us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in response to God and in response to his grace and mercy that we receive into our lives from God and through repentance, through faith and through our baptism into his one holy body. So there is no room here, Jesus is saying and using the scribes as an illustration, there's no room for pretending. There's no room for curating a status or seeking praise from others and putting yourself in the place of God in your heart and life. Receiving God's mercies leads us on to a life of thanks, living our lives in response to God, uh, living our lives as a living sacrifice in his service. So friends, Christ calls us, he calls each of us, to the offering of our whole lives in response to his love by giving God, yes, our finances, but also our gifts, our time, our energy, our words, our thoughts, our deeds, our whole bodies to his service. 
and trusting in his word that whatever season of life that we are in, whether we are at the peak of our professional careers or in the twilight of our lives, that our hearts may be full of praise and worship and trust in God rather than in ourselves. Let us pray.